The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Appreciate you being here, Bereans. This morning, I want to look at the subject of those born of God don't sin. <laughs> now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a very difficult and controversial verse in the epistle of 1 John. Now, if you read through your Bible every year, like I really hope you do, like I encourage you constantly to do, what do you think of when you come to this verse in 1 John? 3.9, it says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. Now, this verse, and first of all, this is a good translation. Okay? The problem with this verse is many, many bad translations out there have changed the wording because it's, it's too in your face. It's too hard. All right, so let's, let's change some words. Let's add some things and we'll make it a little more palatable for our brethren. All right, but this is saying that if you're born again, you do not sin because you cannot sin. Now, the King James Version accurately translates this. Whoever is born of God doth not sin commit sin. For a seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. Now, so basically it's just saying Christians do not sin because they cannot sin. So let me ask you, how does that make you feel? <laughs> well, don't go questioning your salvation quite yet, alright? Let me try to develop this, alright? Pragmatically, we have to question what is being said here. Do you sin? Well, thank you, yes. Then according to this verse, you haven't been born again. Now, in case you're not sure whether you sin or not, let me show you something here. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Now, we talked about pride last week. Humility says, here's what you do. You count others as more, not some others. We all do that. Count others, all others, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interest, we do that very well, but also to the interest of others. So, Here, Paul is calling believers to have the mind, to have the attitude of Christ, which is an attitude of humility. This whole chapter is about humility. What's interesting here is Philippians 2 talks about the doctrine of the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, Christ leaving heaven and becoming a man for us. This is some of the deepest theology you'll find in the Word of God, and yet Paul's whole point here, it's an illustration of humility. That's powerful. So, not to act in this way, not to consider others more important than yourself, is a sin. 
So pragmatically, 1 John 3.9 is a big problem because we all sin. Now, 1 John 3.9 is not only a problem pragmatically, it's a problem doctrinally. Because it doesn't fit the primary rule of hermeneutics, which is... Nope. Primary rule. The analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? That's very important. That's what analogy of faith is. That means that no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. The Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So does the Scripture anywhere teach that believers sin? Do this. (laughs) Yes, it does. It continually calls believers to stop sinning. What John wrote earlier seems to contradict what he wrote here. Look what he writes earlier. In verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, so 3.9 says the believers don't sin and can't sin, and 1.8 says you're self-deceived if you say you don't sin. Does that sound like a contradiction? There's a problem there somewhere, right? All right, look at this. 1 John 2.1, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All right, Christians, I don't want you to sin. And he goes on, but, (laughs) thank you, John, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Christ, the righteous. So here Christians are told not to sin, but then it says if they do sin, because he knows they're going to sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So which is it? Do Christians sin or are they unable to sin? Christian sin, yeah. They sure do. All right. When reading 3.9 in the Christian Standard Bible or the King James, we're faced with what seems to be a blatant contradiction. And it's my opinion that the Christian Standard Bible, the King James, accurately translate 3.9. Look how Young's literal translation puts this verse. Everyone who hath been begotten of God, sin he doth not. Every time I read this, it sounds like Yoda's talking. (laughs) Sin, he doth not. Because his seed in him doth remain, and he is not able to sin. Because of God, he hath been begotten. Look at 1 John 3.9 in the Scripture, 2009. It says, Everyone having been born of Elohim does not sin, because his seed stays in him and he is powerless to sin because he has been born of Elohim. Okay, so you see the problem. Does Scripture contradict itself? No, it does not. So there must be a way to reconcile these verses. But how this is to be reconciled is far from agreed upon. And let me just say here something about Young's Literal. You should be using Young's Literal for any kind of study you really want to do. Because it truly is a literal translation and it will help you understand what you're reading. Puts the tenses in the right place. It it just, it's a good translation. All right. It's not easy reading. Okay. It's choppy, but if you're comparing scripture with scripture, always refer to Young's. It'll be very helpful to you. John R. Stott in the Epistle of John in the Tyndale New Testament commentary gives seven 
traditional interpretations of this passage. Seven of them. Now, there's many, many more solutions than seven have been offered by a lot of different people to try to relieve this tension. But most of them either soften the force of the plain language or they interject theological constructs that are foreign to the context of this epistle. And we're not going to look at all the different ways, but I want to go over several of them for you just to see some of the ways people try to deal with this. Uh, Probably the most popular by far among evangelicals is called the habitual sin view. Okay? And interpreters say that 1 John 1.8 and 1.10, John is saying that Christians are not free of sin, but that in chapter 3, verse 4 and 9, it is saying that no true Christian will have a lifestyle of sin. So they argue that 3, 6, and 9 are saying that those born of God cannot sin habitually. And 1, 8, and 9 recognizes that they do sin occasionally. So you can't sin habitually, but you do sin occasionally. All right, this distinction is based upon the use of the proper tense forms of the verbs in 3, 6, and 9. When speaking about sinning, which is argued denote habitual sinning. Now, many of the modern translations reflect this view here. Uh, The ESV, which I like, it's a good translation, but it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Look at the difference in these translations. Okay? You've got the Christian standard. It says he does not sin. He's not able to sin. He doesn't make a practice of sinning. That makes you feel better, right? I don't practice it. Just do it occasionally, right? He cannot keep on sinning. So he can sin, he just can't keep on doing it. So the ESV has added words. They've added the words practice. This is not in the text. Okay? And they've added the words, keep on. Many translations have done this. Where the CSB is absolute. The ESV is nebulous. He sins, but he doesn't make a practice. So how much sin is that? How much sin is habitual? How much sin is, you know, okay? The modern literal version, 2019, (laughs) puts it like this. Everyone who has been born from God does not practice sin, Because his seed abides in him, and he's not able to practice sin because he's been born of God. People, this is anything but a literal translation. But it's called the modern literal version, 2019. See, the problems with these translations is that the use of the present tense says nothing about habitual or non-habitual character of the sinning. It only shows that the author has chosen to depict the sinning as something in progress rather than a completed action. The present tense is also used in 1.8 where the author says this, if we say we have no sin, but if you, use, you want to make it a present tense and use it this way, he says, if we say that we do not sin habitually, we deceive ourselves. So in 1.8 he's saying we do sin habitually, and then in 3.9, we can't sin habitually. Well, again, you got a contradiction there. In both uses, where sinning is said to be impossible for those born of God, also where those who deny they have sin, he says they're self-deceived. The present tense is used in both these. Zane Hodges writes this. 
There is no doubt that in the appropriate context, the Greek present tense can have a present progressive force like he is sinning. But the introduction of the ideas like continue to sin or go on doing require more than the Greek tense to make them intelligible. For this purpose, there were Greek words available which are actually used in the New Testament. How about that? So if you want to say something like that, you can say it because there's words like that. For example, we see words like in uh, Luke 24, 53, and we're continually in the temple blessing God. So he could have used that word. He didn't. Here continually is the Greek word diapantos, and this same word is used in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging His name. The Greek present tense did not by itself convey the idea of continually or habitually or practice. If John wanted to say no one born of God makes a practice of the thing, he would have used the available Greek words to make his point. No first century Greek reader or hearer was likely to get a meaning like practice out of what's written here. John Murray, commenting on 1 John 3.9, writes this, The interpretation that the regenerate person does not habitually sin labors under two liabilities. The term habitual is not a sufficient, well-defined term. That's true. I mean, what does it habitual mean? How much is habitual? He goes on. Secondly, the characterization leaves too much of a loophole for the incisiveness of John's teaching. It allows that the believer might commit certain sins though not habitually, this would contradict the decisiveness of such a statement that the one begotten of God does not sin and cannot sin. Smalley also unmasked the misuse of the present tense. He points out that in 5.16, it uses the present tense to describe specific sinful acts, not chronic transgression. So the present tense cannot bear the weight that the translations keep on sinning places on it. But many, many translations have done this. Again, because they just look at it and they go, well, it can't mean what it says. Right? Because then we're not Christians because we know Christian sin, so it can't mean that. So let's, let's make it say something else. Alright? And that's what too many people do. So the habitual sin view, I said that's probably the most popular. You can sin, but just not habitually. Alright? Secondly, we have the sinless perfection view. Those who hold this take 1 John 3.9 at face value and they say they no longer sin. <laughs> now, if any of you are familiar with the quietist movement that was originally popular among the Quakers and then became part of the Arminian perfectionist movement, they believed that you could come to a point in your life post-conversion, it was a post-conversion experience where you momentarily became so totally surrendered to God that you never sinned again. Sinless perfection. That sounds great, doesn't it? Anybody here reach that level yet? One of the popular quietest writers, Trumbull, who wrote this. He says, In this condition, a Christian does not even experience temptation, for it is defeated by Christ before it has time to draw him into a fight. Think about this, people. Sinless perfection. No temptation. You're sinless. You're perfect. 
I think you probably understand this, but sinless perfection is a myth. Okay? Do you know anybody who is sinlessly perfect? Yeah? Oh, thank you. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> she would, she's not telling the truth. <laughs> Believe me. She, <laughs> she would testify this. No, not to that. All right. I don't know anybody. Okay? I really don't. Now, if we hold to this view that we can reach sinless perfection and we sin, and we will, whose fault is it? It can't be our fault because we surrendered, right? Now, within the sphere of preterism, there are some who are teaching that sin, all sin, ended in AD 70, and therefore, believers don't sin today. This, in my view, is a self serving theology that allows them to engage in all kinds of sinful behavior and say, it's okay. We don't sin today. But I got news for you. Beyond 8070, men still sin. Hang on to this. Christians still sin. You still sin. Okay? We all still sin. But John says he's not able to sin because he's been born of God. So if 1 John 3, 9 was talking about sinless perfection, it wouldn't be something we had to work for, right? The perfectionist says Christians reach a place where he doesn't sin, but 3, 9 says it would be something that everyone who was born of God from the moment they trusted Christ would have. If John is talking about sinless perfection, then 3, 9 would prove too much. In that event, every regenerate person would be sinlessly perfect, and only... Sinlessly perfect persons would be regenerate. That would leave a whole lot of us out, right? So that view doesn't work too well either. Let's look at another one. The not real view. <laughs> these are real views that people... I mean, theologians are coming up with these, okay? They're sitting around thinking, of how, we, how do we deal with this text? Let's make stuff up, okay? The not real view. This view says that John does not describe reality, but I, what is ideal, Okay? Swaddling argues that the problem is more apparent than real. He suggests that it's the troublesome texts like 3.6 and 3.9 are in fact quotations of heretical secessionist slogans claiming that Christians cannot sin. So he's saying, John's not saying this about Christians. That their spirits are unaffected by the behavior. However, this approach is faulty because the author uses these so-called slogans as a basis for his criteria for distinguishing the children of God from the children of the devil. And therefore, they cannot be written off as heretical secessionist slogans. Not, no, they're just not real. Alford takes this view. C.H. Dodd, William Barclay mentioned this view as a possibility. I don't see John intending to deceive Christians by writing about ideals. Because in 3.7 he says, let no one deceive you. And that's, that's kind of deceptive, I would think. So let's move on to another one. The absolute view, Kubo, argues that the affirmations of 3.9 must be interpreted absolutely. I.e., sinning in this context is an absolute impossibility for those born of God. And to deny this is to weaken the point made by the author. That's a pretty strong position. To resolve the tension between this text and 1.8 and 9, Kubo argues that the author is rejecting what he's rejecting in 1, 8, and 9 is the claim to have no sin made by those who walk in darkness. See, it's not inappropriate for those who walk in the light to make such a claim. 
So again, playing with stuff. This stands in direct contradiction to uh, chapter 2, which says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, because someone's going to, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Believers, don't sin, but if you do, we have an advocate. All right? So the absolute view, that, that doesn't hold much water at all. All right. The projected eschatological reality view. This view would make sense if we were living in the transition period. Okay? While several interpreters take this essential view, the exact phrase was coined by Daniel B. Wallace. And speaking of the present tense in 1 John 3, 6, and 9, Wallace writes this. The immediate context seems to be speaking of a projected eschatological reality. The larger section of this letter addresses the bright side of the eschaton. Since Christians are in the last days, their hope of Christ's imminent return should produce godly living. The author first articulates how such an eschatological hope should produce holiness. Thus, the author states in an absolute manner truths that are not yet true. Because he's speaking within the context of eschatological hope and eschatological judgment. Now, like I said, we see this in the already not yet, but only in the transition period. All right? Coates argues that the contradictory statement about sinning are to be understood against the background of the author's eschatology. The believer is born of God, but he's not yet what he will be when Christ returns. And again, that I can understand this. There's many things we see this way in Scripture, the already not yet, but that's been fulfilled. Now, Schnackenberg also says the tension between the two passages is best explained in terms of the eschatological eschatological tension in which believers live. But we don't live in an eschatological tension anymore. However, the Coates and Snackenberg approach also undermines the author's purpose. You can't distinguish the children of God from the children of the devil by saying the children of God in one sense do not sin, but in another sense they do. It just doesn't fit. This view holds that 1 John 3.9 is speaking in terms of a projected eschatological reality. So John is projecting the eschatological reality of sinlessness on believers. He's talking about what will be like after the Lord returns. But, since we know the Lord already has returned, we know that this is not what these verses are talking about. All right, so that view doesn't make it either. The new nature, old nature view. I'm ashamed to say Zane Hodges held this view, advocated this view. Zane was uh, taught New Testament Greek at Dallas for 27 years. He was a great man of God. I <clears throat> uh, had some great discussions with him, but I think this is a, a pretty weak position that, that he holds here. He says, as a total person, we do sin and can never claim to be free of it. But our inward self that is regenerated does not sin. That makes sense? So I sin, but I don't sin. Right? It's me, but it, it's not me. Right? Our inward self that is regenerated does not sin. Now, he goes on to argue that sin exists in the Christian, but it's foreign to his true internal self. Sin is an impossibility for the regenerated self, which is the believer's true identity. All I can say here is that at least Hodges takes the view, he takes 
the Word of God literally here, who is ever born of God doesn't sin. He takes it at face value on a grammatical level. But his theological construct is hard to justify in this context. Okay? Brooke is another scholar who wants to solve the problem by taking into account the nature of man. And he says, the fact that he has been begotten of God excludes the possibility of his committing sin as an expression of his true character. Though actually sins may and do occur insofar as he fails from weakness or to realize his true character. I just can't buy this view. They're saying we sin, but not really us. So you can just say, oh yeah, that was the old me, not the, not the real me, you know. I don't see John as talking about our inward self. This view almost sounds Gnostic to me. This is what John is combating, the Gnostics. The Gnostic says the physical doesn't matter. That seems to smack of that here to me, all right? All right, the contradiction view. Any of you ever heard of uh, Raymond Brown? He's a renowned Catholic Johannian scholar, and he believes that a contradiction does exist and it cannot be explained away. Here's what Brown says. No other New Testament author contradicts himself so sharply within such a short span of writing. So his position, it's just a contradiction. Oh, how does that fit with the inspiration of Scripture? Bogart likewise says there is an unresolvable contradiction in 1 John in the matter of perfectionism. He also recognizes two types of perfectionism in 1 John, but rejects Brown's suggestion that they both may be traced to different interpretations of the fourth gospel. So there's just all these different views, and none of these views are satisfactory to me. Can we interpret John's statement about sin and perfection without accusing him? of contradicting himself, and without nullifying the argument of 310? I think we can. Let's call it this, the specific sin view. If we go back to the fourth gospel, remember, written by the same author, and look at how Yeshua uses the word sin, it may help us to understand what John means in our text. So let's go to John 9, where he says, And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And then Yeshua responded to their question. So they, they see this blind guy and they go, well, somebody messed up. Somebody sinned. That's why this guy's blind. You know? Okay. Health, wealth, doctrine, kind of the same position today. But who did it? Who sinned? And Yeshua responded, it was not this man, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, let me ask you this. Was Yeshua saying that the son and his parents had never sinned? It wasn't this man that sinned or his parents. Was he saying, these guys never sinned? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the blindness was not due to a specific sin they did. That's what he's saying. Now, at the end of this chapter, Yeshua said to certain of the Pharisees, he said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now the word translated guilt Greek word hamartia. You know what hamartia is? Sin. Sin. Okay? And that's how it should be translated. Was Yeshua saying that if these Pharisees were physically blind, they'd be sinless? No. Again, he's talking about a specific sin characteristic of the Pharisees, which was their rejection of Christ. In the upper room discourse, Yeshua told his disciples, 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Again, is Yeshua saying that they, in this context he's referring to the world, would be free of sin if he had not spoken to them? No. He's speaking of the specific sin that they were guilty of, which was rejecting him. So in each of these cases, the terms are absolute. Some specific sin is in view, and that same principle needs to apply to the language of 1 John 3, 9, where John is speaking of a specific sin. What is that sin? Well, (laughs) Hall Harris, which I actually had to laugh when I read this, he's a pretty brilliant scholar, but... He suggests that John is talking about sin, a specific sin, but he says the sin is failure to love your brother. So he notes that loving the brethren is a theme that runs throughout this epistle, and failure to do so is the only specific sin his opponents are ever charged with. So loving the brethren, he says, is undoubtedly a major theme in 1 John, and the following context of 3.11-15 through 15 does move explicit warnings against not loving one another. So what do you think about this view? Let's interpret 3.9 in his view. Everyone who has been born of God loves others. Because his seed remains in him, he's not able to be unloving because he's been born of God. Does that make that verse easier to take? <laughs> no? Well, not loving your brother is a sin, right? But does everybody love their brother perfectly? Not too well at all. Each and every one of us are unloving at times. This view doesn't really help a bit. But Colin G. Krauss, in the Pillar New Testament commentary, he has this to say. He says, Is anomia the key? One way forward is to recognize that the passage, 3.6-9, is part of the treatment of the connection between knowing God and doing righteousness found in 2.29-3.10. In this passage, the author provides a basis for distinguishing the children of God from the children of the devil. In doing so, he makes a connection between the word sin and the devil three times. This connection is made both by explicit reference to the devil, 3.8 and 10, and implicitly by equating sin, hamartia, and lawlessness, anomia, in 3.4. Anomia is found only in 3.4 in 1 John. Now, in 1 John 3.4, he says, anyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, anomia. And sin is anomia, it's lawlessness. Now, in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, we find anomia used to translate no less than 24 different Hebrew words. The most frequent one is the Hebrew word avan, for which English words like wickedness or iniquity are good equivalents. Now, in some places in the Septuagint, anomia has satanic associations. And in two places, it's used to translate belial. These things pave the way for the teaching in the latter Jewish text that the sins of the people of Israel were brought about by the powers of wickedness, by Satan, by his spirits. People who commit sins then are called the children of iniquity. So among the Gospels, only Matthew uses the word anomia. And he does so consistently in association with false prophets or others who oppose God's kingdom, and always in association with the last days or the final judgment. Now, in the Pauline corpus, the single form anomia is 
in all cases but one, is used to denote a sinful power at work in the world and one to which Christians must not submit themselves. Paul uses this word to describe the man of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for this day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, in the New Testament, anomia, meaning transgression of the law, is completely absent. All suggest that when John says sin is anomia, he does not mean it's a violation of the Mosaic law. The word namos, law, doesn't even appear in 1 John. Rather, he is saying that human sin is anomia, when it involves opposition to and rebellion against God. And so is similar to the opposition and rebellion of Satan. Now, a number of exegetes consider anomia to be more than lawlessness. Anomia may have the meaning of rejection and opposition of God's will and His rule. And so the sin which distinguishes the children of the devil is the sin which has its roots in anomia, which is rebellion against God. It is a sin that believers cannot commit because God's seed remains in them. The children of God do sometimes commit sins. 1 John 2.1 But the one thing they cannot do is commit anomia, the sin of rebellion, which is the sin of the devil. We could say that the sin that John is talking about in 1 John 3.9 is the sin of rejecting Christ. That's the sin that Christians cannot do. Look what he says in John 8.24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Alright, so you have to believe in me. If you don't believe in me, if you don't believe that I am the Tetragrammaton, I'm Yahweh, if you don't believe that, you'll die in your sins. Look what else he says, 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now in the world already. Some were not confessing Christ. They were denying Him. They were denying that He is the Son of God, that He was who He says He is. Now notice how John closes this epistle of 1 John. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, 1 John 3, John is writing with two distinct and radically different groups of people in mind. And this is clear from the first verse. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world, so we have a contradiction here, we have the children of God and we have the world, does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Here we see two groups, the children of God, second one being the world. In verse 10, it is clarified that the term world, as used here, means children of the devil. He says, but this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This way of radically dividing the human race is typical of John. 
we see a similar thrust in two passages from the fourth gospel where Yeshua says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We see that distinction. Now we see the same division in John 17, 6 through 15. He says, I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we have the children of God, and we have the children of the world. And then in 3.4 he says, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. Now the term everyone here in this verse doesn't include the children of God. It's not universal in the sense of including both classes of people under consideration. It's clear that everyone who commits sin doesn't apply to the children of God because verse 6 categorically states, no one who abides in him sins. And verse 9 says, no one born of God commits sin. The parallel construction in verse 3 reads like this, in 3, and everyone who has this hope, so you have everyone there and a different everyone in 3-4. You have everyone who's committing sin, those are the people of the world, in verse 3, it's everyone who has this hope purifies himself. They're mutually exclusive classes of people. So we could say that lawlessness, anomia, as a definition for sin in this context, applies only to the children of the devil. It's a kind of sin the sense represents disobedience or rebellion, colored and fostered by a particular orientation to sin. The people that John is warning his readers about held beliefs that involved a denial that Yeshua was the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. They denied that. And that, and his death was necessary for the goodness of sins. They didn't believe that. So John uses onomia only once in this epistle, and that is when he defines the sin of the world, the children of the devil. What is the sin of the children of God? John does not say that God's children do sin, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So here, the context clearly has reference to the sins of the children of God, and the key word here is unrighteousness. In 5.17, where again the context clearly has reference to the sins of the children of God, we find this, all unrighteousness is sin, there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. The word unrighteousness here is adikia. So in 3.4, we see that lawlessness, anomia, is sin. And in 5.17, we see that unrighteousness, adikia, is sin. The first applies to the children of the devil. The second applies to the children of God. The first issue is from alienation and estrangement from God in Christ. The second issue is from a fallible and imperfect commitment to the faith of God in Christ. So John sees two categories of sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say you should pray for that. So the children of God have an advocate. That's why their sin does not lead to death. In 1 John 2, again 1 and 2, again, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Christ, the righteous. 
he, he ends this by saying, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right? Now, the term world here has at least ten meetings in John. Christ did not propitiate the wrath of God against everybody. That's a common view that most Arminians hold, all Arminians hold. Christ, you know, He came to save everybody. But He laid down His life for the sheep, the Bible tells us. They are scattered throughout the world in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It doesn't say that He purchased all people in every group, but He purchased some people from every group. World here means Jew and Gentile alike. Both classes of people, the children of the devil, are without an advocate. Therefore, their sin leads to death. We could translate 1 John 3.9 this way. Everyone who has been born of God does not reject Christ. Because his seed remains in him, he is, una- he is not able to reject Christ because he has been born of God. Believers, we sin. <laughs> and quite often on a regular basis. But our sin does not lead unto death. And this verse is telling us that we cannot commit the sin that unbelievers do, which is rejection of Christ, because we have trusted in Christ. The sin that leads to death is the rejection of Christ. And I believe that's what John is talking about. This is, it's a specific sin he has in mind. That's the only way you can even fit it into this context. This view is the only one, in my opinion, that takes the text seriously. And basically what he's saying, and what he's talking about here is the sin of rejecting Christ. You reject Christ, you haven't been born of God. There's no doubt about that. People, translations are important. So make sure you compare translations... And please, like I said earlier, please use Young's literal because it is in fact literal and it's going to help you understand. But I get a bunch of translations and compare them. And sometimes you're like, is that even the same verse? You know, then you've got to figure out where did they get this from? How did this come about? I haven't found a translation that's perfect. Believe me, they all have issues. You know, I like the ESV. I think the ESV is good. The Christian Standard Bible is very good. Young's literal is very good. But a correct understanding of this verse should strengthen our assurance as believers, not attack it. And if you're an honest person and you read this in a correct translation, that we don't sin because we're born of God, then you're like, well, then am I not born of God? Because I do sin. Or you could minimize your sin and say, that's not really sin. Either way, it's not good for us, okay? (laughs) Believers do sin but they can never commit the sin of rejecting Christ. Because once we come to Christ, we belong to Him. He keeps us safe forever and always. And assurance is so important to believers' life. You know, I don't think you're going to ever be able to live a victorious Christian life if you don't have assurance. Why struggle to live for God when I don't even know if I'm His or not? That's the problem. But when you know I belong to Christ... And I need to be living better than I am because I'm His child. I'm representing Him. Okay? Don't let anything doubt your salvation. When you come across texts like this and you're like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm... No. It goes against all, so much of Scripture that assures the believer. It goes against so much of John's teaching. John chapter 10. You know? His sheep, they hear His voice. They follow Him. He gives them everlasting life. No one will ever pluck them from His hand. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your text. Lord, it's a difficult text. So many different views, so many different opinions. I ask again, Lord, you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Father. They wouldn't accept what we hear, wouldn't reject what we hear, but we'd study what we hear to find out if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you've given us today. We have so many study guides, so many references, so many translations at our fingertips. We have no excuse. Our problem today is strictly laziness, because everything's there that we need to know and understand your word. Help us, Lord, to be faithful Bereans to do just that. Amen. All right, questions, comments? Sharon. So, how does that jive with um, apostasies? Depending, I know on how you would interpret Hebrews 6. I mean, if you have tasted and you've enjoyed and then you turn away. Correct. Great question. Great question, Sharon. Uh, her question is, how does that fit in with apostasy? I believe apostasy is real. I believe a believer can turn away from Christ. Okay? But that doesn't change their position. Okay? Here's the thing we have to understand. Your position from the moment you trust Christ is secure forever and always. Your practice fluctuates. And 1 John's really big on that because 1 John is talking about Christian practice. He wants us to abide in Christ, which is different than being a believer. Because he tells the believers to abide. So if it was the same thing, that'd be kind of foolish, right? Uh, you're a believer, believe in Christ. I do believe in Christ. We tell the believer to abide because the abide, mano there, means Get in a close relationship with Him. Walk intimately with God. When you do that, you're not going to sin. Because you're in this relationship, this loving, intimate relationship. But there is such a thing as apostasy where a believer will turn away. Something happens in their life. They get mad at God. Whatever. They turn away from God. There still is. That will never change. It will never alter. Alright? And Hebrews 6 talks about that. There's a judgment that comes upon them, you know. The rain is withheld, and and that's a picture of judgment that a believer goes through in this life. But once a believer, you're locked in forever and always, okay? But they are a believer, and they are denying, but we're talking about the difference. We're talking about someone who just flat out rejects Christ, okay? They don't, I'm not talking about after they become a Christian, People yes. do reject them after they That's become Christian. But we're talking about initially, they just see Christ, they understand, they no, I don't want anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. Not dealing with a believer. Okay? Mm-hmm. Believers do apostatize. All right? And they go through great judgment because of it. Good question, though, Sharon. Yes, Matt. Do you think that um, it, this kind that kind of goes hand in hand with when the Pharisees, when they the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where they were not only rejecting Jesus, God, but also the Holy Spirit and blasphemy of that, of like that. yeah, that that's what they were doing was rejecting Christ. You know, that's the sin they're talking about. You know, they just said, well, they saw what he did, and he said, oh, that's of the devil. <laughs> no, that's of God, and you're attributing the works of God to the devil because they rejected Christ. That was their sin. There's a lot of people today involved in that. The sin unto death. It leads to death because if you don't know Christ, you got nothing but death. 